Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Today's learning objective is to describe the health impact of comorbid effects of HIV and COVID-19. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Today, he will be interviewing Dr. David Malbranch, a board-certified internal medicine physician and sexual health and HIV specialist. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Malbranch, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Faith. Uh, great to have uh, David here today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm uh, excited to talk. Yeah, so we, uh, we, we're going to dive into a few topics. I think one of the things that I always like to consider is, given the rapid pace of the pandemic at the start and how it affected our uh, outpatient care, especially for vulnerable patients, and of course, talking about HIV populations, uh, at Baltimore, we have a very large clinic, I'm sure you as well, at, at Atlanta. Uh, how did the early days of the pandemic go in terms of offering patient care? And, and then, of course, you know, might we do something different if we had some preparation? I'm not sure we really thought about clinics shutting down. Yeah, I think uh, it's a great question. And I think, you know, similar to Baltimore, I think Atlanta had uh, various challenges and it went everywhere from the private clinics to the community funded clinics. Uh, to even, you know, Grady Hospital, and we have a large uh, HIV clinic down here, and some of the other hospitals and clinics that provide care to um, folks who don't have insurance and the indigent. So I think, you know, the shutting down of clinics really put a, a wrench in everything. And what we were seeing from some of the data that came out afterwards, particularly from the Department of Health, was that especially when it came to STIs, follow-up for HIV treatment, as well as PrEP, that everybody was kind of scrambling. And it was this kind of fly by the seat of your pants approach where, you know, shutting down the clinics, keeping everyone safe, trying to speed, go at warp speed to get everyone uh, up to date with telemedicine, which for a lot of medical providers, we, you know, we're kind of dragged in kicking and screaming and then kind of figuring out the logistics of it. Like, you know, how are we going to do prescriptions? Are we going to do, you know, the one month typical or do we uh, shift to three months? How are we going to get the labs to follow up? Is there some leniency or some flexibility that we can incorporate there. So I think with a lot of the clinics down here, we had that same problem and really kind of figuring out what we were doing and then slowly starting to open up a model where you were saying, okay, let's bring folks in now and let's have them say, sit in the car for a little bit when they have to come for the labs. And then we'll text them when we're ready to draw the labs and keeping the people in the waiting area to a minimum. There were a lot of logistical concerns that I think were happening on the fly and probably didn't roll out in the smoothest measure that we all wanted them to. Um, but again, it's not every day that you deal with a pandemic. So I think uh, the unfortunate reality is that we had to be a little bit more patient um, 
with kind of the processes and what were going on because none of us knew what we were doing and we we're just trying to figure it out moving forward. Yeah, David, I, I think you may you so nicely summarize the state of chaos that was really, uh, of course, all across, um, not only in medicine, but elsewhere. But so many of our patients, I think, had um, aspects of fear. They didn't really want to go anywhere near the hospital, which I thought was very interesting, even though we reduced appointments and we did a lot of the same measures that you discussed. It um, uh, our ability to get, attract people into the clinic really uh, was very difficult for a period of months. And I, I didn't know, did you have any successful interventions to try to regain, regain trust or safety? I mean, obviously we used all sorts of mitigation techniques, but from a communication and trust standpoint, I, uh, to this day, we're still fighting a lot of these issues. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we were trying to do a lot of things like, you know, reaching out through email lists, sending text messages to patients, sending letters to patients, reaching out with phone calls, doing things old school, social media platforms we were using as well to try to get people engaged. I think one of the issues that we tapped into was that, you know, for a lot of clinics, there are deals, especially when you're dealing with a high percentage who are uninsured, there's already a certain amount of no-shows and problems with engagement and care at a baseline level. And then you throw in something like this. Um, and then I, th I think one of the things you spoke to was kind of getting people back to trust. We've, we're still struggling with this today, but it, it's the whole misinformation campaign that is just kind of a factory assembly line that keeps putting out information and it is tirelessly working 24 7 365 to put out information so us as medical professionals we've been on our heels the entire time trying to you know kind of counteract the misinformation that people are having so even as the initial chaos started to settle in and we said okay well we now have this figured out we know that masks work we can bring people in and everyone just has to wear masks we'll balance this thing with telemedicine versus brick and mortar um, then the vaccines became developed you're still having, we're still seeing a residual of patients and community members that are still like, uh, I'm not buying it, I'm not coming in. And so it's been very difficult to deal with that because on a, on a very human level, no matter what marketing or outreach strategy you have, I think the problem was that the communication strategy from a public health perspective, it, it, it wasn't as centralized as the disinformation campaigns that we see. And then plus, it's an evolving thing. So we'd have one day where we'd have a study that said X, Y, and Z, and then another day would say, oh, well, you know what? That's different. We learned another study from the UK. And since this is a global pandemic, you were seeing studies from Australia, from Israel, from all different facets of the globe. And some of them were supporting some of the things that were coming out and other things were counteracting them. And for us as medical professionals, it was, it was hard to keep up. Some of the, the publications, as you know, were happening before they were peer reviewed and being streamlined to the media. And then the general population, which only has Google doctor, Dr. Google as their primary resource, were sitting there thinking, what is going on? Why did Dr. Fauci say something three months ago and now he's going back against them? And they didn't understand and we didn't communicate well enough that this is how science works. It evolves. Sometimes it doesn't give with certainty an answer to the question that you're looking for. And sometimes when we get new information, we do have to change our position. We didn't explain that well enough. And the way the general public interpreted that was, oh, you're being hypocritical or you're going back on what you said before. 
which I think has been a huge, huge barrier in us moving forward against this pandemic. Yeah, David, you so well articulated issues that I think in a way our profession has partially contributed over decades. And, and I think what you mentioned, the changing uh, information, the changing recommendations, it's like the weather almost, uh, but people started to apply a political slant to it. I mean, mm -hmm. people are flip-flopping. Well, uh, you know, it's really not taking an opinion stand. But really, I think American medicine has had a bit of a God complex for quite a long time. I mean, we tend to say things always with a lot of certainty. Um, we really feel like we can solve most problems, even though we know we can't. I mean, there, there has been this attribute that American medicine is really placed so high, but also there have been egregious problems in the past and, and ongoing in terms of mm -hmm. access to care, disparities, um, uh, historical uh, experiments that uh, obviously people still look up on, such as, you know, the Tuskegee experiment and so on. So I, I think, you know, the fact that we suddenly were grappling with these rapid changes and recommendations, I think so many patients just, it, it was very hard to understand because that's not what we've said. Oh, you know, maybe there's a new HIV medication that comes out, but that's over a two or three year period. And is generally a, uh, not a lot of urgency. And I, I think this is something that um, has come out a lot. And I, I, I know I'm not asking you a question at the moment, but given all this kind of miasma that was happening, we found that so many of our encounters had to happen over the telephone, uh, right. at least in East Baltimore. We did not have, you know, people didn't have smartphones, they didn't have computers set up for access and so on. And uh, what was the perspective in Atlanta, or at least in your network of physicians did, you know, we always have done a lot of telephone care for people, but, you know, were we losing things? What, what was the sense of patients? I, I wasn't sure the lack of face-to-face, -face, I think, was a real problem in many atrophies. Yeah, I would agree. And I think um, for a lot of people, and what I've seen, and this is not a, a change or a shift among medical uh, clinics or systems or culture that I think is for the better. But there's been this kind of um, shift to where we have, you know, the patient portal, uh, right? And we can kind of send messages or we can give a blip to a patient and say, hey, your CAT scan results are ready. And then they're sitting there reading their CAT scan results and all the medical terms and they don't understand. And we may not be as proactive as having that communication with them. Um, and it's also akin to, you know, there's a lot of parallels with, uh, you know, HIV and COVID that have been brought up on several different levels. But like some of the things at a clinic where I was working, um, a lot of the providers would take this attitude with the patients. When they get the labs, they say, hey, if I don't call you, everything looks good. And if I call you, then, you know, and the unfortunate reality with that is that I, I think that's kind of short-sighted and not a good way to handle patient care because you're sitting there and telling somebody um, everything's okay if I don't call you. So you're setting up uh, the norm that the only time you're going to hear from a provider is when something is bad or something is wrong. So that's a problem. And then two, you don't give people details. And I think specifically with HIV and even to an extent with COVID, you want to give people details. Folks do have questions when they see those lab results come back, and you do want to go over that. But it, again, it speaks to, I think, a point you made really eloquently was that COVID basically exposed 
the flaws in the medical system that were already there, but basically exposed them on steroids and made us realize like how faulty, how inequitable our systems are and how we really need to revamp some of these systems. So instead of the conversation of, well, can this COVID thing just go away so we can get, get back to normal? The way I was interpreting it was, well, wait, our systems have been flawed and dysfunctional for a long period of time. COVID is really showing us how flawed and dysfunctional we are. When we move forward, this is not about going back to the way it was before. This is about changing the paradigms, changing uh, the culture, changing the systems and the infrastructure so that we can provide better care, not only in the case of a future pandemic, but just on a general uh, level, especially with people who are living with HIV, who have a lot of these social conditions um, that already create inequities among HIV outcomes. We're doing the same thing for COVID-19 as well. One, one I think, uh, uh, aspect that we have a, an impression of, but not necessarily data, is uh, uh, an increase in, in um, substance use um, during the pandemic, whether whether it's alcohol, whether it's marijuana, whether uh, um, or or uh, their um, uh, illegal uh, drugs, as it were, uh, is that something that um, I just feel this has sort of complicated care uh, to some degree, even more so as we were dealing before we had a different uh, epidemic, <laughs> the right. opioid, which. You know, Baltimore has been a heroin city since the late 50s, early 60s, completely underplayed until it went into a white suburban or rural reaction and uh, uh, epidemic and, of course, got quite a lot of press. And, of course, I feel like that's been lost. But I, I don't think that stopped, even though there have been some legitimate efforts on the prescription drug front. Uh, what's your sense of how that's played out in the current pandemic? Yeah, I think there's different levels to it. And I think, you know, if you speak about, and, you know, one of the, the drugs we don't talk about a lot because it's kind of scattershot with whether it's legal or not um, is marijuana, where there's some states that are still prosecuting folks for smoking marijuana. There's some states where it's completely legal and it's become a capitalistic endeavor. So people are able to use that. Um, what I've seen down here is obviously we have pockets of uh, issues with an opioid um, epidemic in some of the rural areas as around the state of Georgia, as well as within the cities. And in some of the rural areas, we're also seeing um, different pockets of meth and what's happening with crystal meth. And so for instance, in the Atlanta area proper, you're seeing a lot of young black gay men that were in social networks with white gay men that were traditionally using meth a long time ago that are now uh, being strung out on crystal meth and having a problem with that, which obviously obviously has intersections with uh, sexual health, HIV, STIs, et cetera. But then you're also seeing in um, some of the migrant farmers who are in some of the more rural areas uh, in Georgia who are using stimulants like meth, as well as prescribed stimulants to basically help them to carry through their daily duties um, and be able to stay awake so they can produce on you know whatever factory uh, they're working on. And so you'll see these little pockets that are coming in. And I think when COVID happened, it just put gasoline on a fire with that and kind of added to it as well. I'm seeing a lot of people, you know, the substance abuse thing is one thing. I think people are getting scared to get back into having sex again. They're scared to go to clinics, but I just, I really experienced so many patients that I spoke to who were afraid to actually, and these were people who were sexually active before, whether it be with a primary partner 
or casual partners were scared to get out there again. And it was interesting seeing New York City kind of deal with this and put out recommendation that, you know, for gay men, they could use glory holes or things that, you know, weren't going to involve the mouth or secretions <laughs> or anything like that. And so you could yeah. see us kind of creating this as we we're moving along to help people with harm reduction or risk mitigation strategies, very similar to HIV to say, hey, you can avoid this disease if you kind of know how it's transmitted, but still enjoy your life or do these other things that are pleasurable to you. So it was really interesting to see that dynamic kind of develop last year and into this year. Yeah, I, I think you're uh, really touching on so many issues that are important, I think, in patient health uh, that we often don't really grapple with or we're, we're sort of researching on the side, but on a one-on-one -on -one basis, uh, we may not be asking the right questions all the time. And especially if we're on telemedicine and we don't know who's in the room or right. even someone on the phone, or are they on speakerphone? I have found I am more circumspect than I would be normally in a room to ask about this. Or I just say, or, you know, can I speak freely or these sorts of things? And, and I think, I've talked to some of our fellows and so on. I don't think, again, they're really doing that. They're going through, oh, you're taking your medicines, that's great, and sort of moving on. And I think there's just so much more that's going on than ever um, that uh, we really have to touch on uh, the mental health aspects, which I think we try to do, but we're often not, um, we're honestly just uh, not as good at as uh, sort of the, uh, HIV care specific that we're, you know, I, I think we're very fond of talking about all the time. Yeah, and I think to your point, you know, there is something, I think with the art of medicine, it's, it's become lost over the years, obviously. And, you know, as kind of, you know, business transactions, RVUs, you know, productivity, burning out of, you know, residents and PAs, nurse practitioners, MDs, has all been happening, that we've lost the art of medicine. And I think it's particularly important in our populations who are living with HIV because that kind of personal connection um, is very important. And so you can't get that from a telemedicine encounter. You can't get that unless you see somebody in person. And I can't tell you the number of people, you know, specifically this year um, with this kind of ebb and flow of the different you know, peaks of this pandemic have come and gone where patients have been pleasantly surprised and happy when I called them with lab results. And one person I started describing their lab results, oh, your T cell count is this, your viral load with this, and he just started laughing. And I said, I was like, did I say something funny? And he said, no, it's the first time a doctor is calling me back to give me these results. And I thought, and he was very happy, he was very thankful after we um, you know, touched base. But I was thinking to myself, is it that I'm that extraordinary, which I mean, I think I'm great and a good doctor and everything, but I don't think I'm that extraordinary, but it's more of a, a commentary on how deficient we may be as medical providers at the art of medicine and communicating, and particularly for people living with HIV when there's so much stigma attached, even if we do have single tablet regimens that keep people alive for years and years and thriving very well living with HIV, that there's still such a social stigma attached that we cannot underestimate the importance of that connection between a provider um, and a patient. It's just, I, I can't think with the exception of maybe oncology where it's that important with, the, with regard to the art of medicine. Let me close by asking maybe a charged question and it's a flip. I'm not so much asking about the patients we care for. It's more about our colleagues. 
telemedicine has become maybe the favorite option for many, for, for a large number. It seems to be easier. You can do it from home. You could be flexible. Um, and I've just heard all the things why I enjoy being a physician that's being one-on-one -on -one in the office and, and getting, and really getting almost that your own kind of dopamine surge because right. someone is reacting to you and responding and so on. We've tried to decrease the number of telemedicine where, you know, sort of, you know, we can have days here or there, but we're trying to limit the amount because I think normally it would float up to 50% or more if wow. uh, maybe physicians, I'm just predicting if left to their own devices. What's your sense from colleagues? Do you feel like there's a commitment to get back into person? I'm, I, I'm just being the cynic here. I'm not sure. Telemedicine has lots of benefits. People don't have to travel. Um, you know, there's certainly a place for it. And I think it's great. And the pandemic is ushered in something that I think has potential, but I worry as I think maybe I share with you that, you know, they're, they're, the right balance uh, I think is important to achieve. It's interesting because uh, years ago um, when I was on faculty and director of student and employee health and wellness at uh, Morehouse School of Medicine, we actually, I was charged with doing some focus groups as we wanted to create a new student health center uh, with all the four uh, HBCUs that are in the Atlanta University Center. So it was uh, Spelman, Clark Atlanta, uh, Morehouse College and Morehouse School of Medicine. And one of the questions we asked to all the students in these focus groups was, you know, what do you think about telehealth and telemedicine? And we explained what it was and kind of what it was. And, you know, you would expect that these students, these college students that were um, Generation Z would be thinking like, hey, we're all technology, that's what we want. It was the exact opposite. Most of them were saying, well, maybe for a, a mental health um, visit, I would do that. But if I have a rash on me or if I'm promised something, I want you to see it. I want you to touch it. I want you to touch me. I want to know that you're there. And I was thinking to myself, so when we have these conversations with our colleagues and our colleagues will argue, well, the patients want technology. They want telehealth. I almost think it's a projection of what certain um, a number of our colleagues want for themselves because it's more convenient and less burdensome for commute, other kinds of dynamics than actually what the patients want. And I haven't seen a whole lot of studies, but I do know for myself that I think that COVID-19 kind of built up telemedicine as a platform that's an option. I'm very clear that I don't think it's going to be the norm and nor do I think it should be the norm because you can only see so many pictures or images of a rash. I know people have um, connections with USB that you can listen to a heart or listen to a lungs, but I, I just, when I'm looking at it, I was like, that's not a sufficient substitute. So I do think like for instance, with PrEP um, circles and when we're doing HIV care for certain check-ins where you don't really have to do much of a physical exam, I think telemedicine is a great bridge to check in with a patient, let them know that you're concerned, let them know you're checking in on things and, and field any questions they may have as a bridge until the next in-person visit. I think it's an adjunct, but I don't think it should be a replacement for this at all. But I, I, I agree with you where I think that a lot of our colleagues may disagree, but it may be more for more personal reasons right. than for the benefit of the patient. Right. Well, uh, David, I really wanted to thank you for your uh, insights and this uh, important topic as numbers decline. Uh, hopefully, uh, I think you said it so well, 
I don't think we're we need want to go back to where we were. We want to try to learn and grow from this, and and hopefully achieve uh, improved care for our patients and and, and really ourselves as well. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Malbranch, Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for all of your valuable insights today. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.